Welcome to Farscape Friday, episode 12. We'll be discussing the Farscape episode, The Flax. I'm Kay here with my co-host, Taz. Hello, everyone. Let's get started. Welcome back. Here's a quick summary of the Flax. Aaron is teaching Carton to drive the shuttle when they get caught in an invisible net called the Flax. As their ship begins losing life support, they have to decide who will die in order to fix the shuttle. Meanwhile, Dargo and an ex-pirate go looking for a deep space Luxon ship, and Rigel gambles with all their lives when he plays Tadek with the man who runs the Flax. So first, a quick note on continuity. We've tried to avoid the, the classic blunders in Farscape viewing, namely watching season one episodes in the right order. So those of you following along might have noticed that on Netflix, the episodes are in airing order, which is not the right story order for a lot of the early episodes like IET. And the Flax and Rhapsody in Blue are also switched. So on my DVDs, it's actually Rhapsody Blue that comes first and then the Flax. And we kind of messed that up and we switched them for this podcast. And fortunately, those two episodes are okay to switch in terms of continuity. So we're just going to roll with it and do the Flax first. These early episodes, The Flax and Rhapsody in Blue, are okay to switch because they deal with such different themes and have such different focuses. The Flax is an episode where there's a lot going on. It, it literally has three different plot lines, while Rhapsody in Blue is very Xan-centric. In The Flax, we have three main plot lines. There's the Aaron and John dealing with the very real possibility of both or one of them dying. Dargo and our awesome guest star Stans go searching for a Luxon battleship, and Rigel spends the whole episode acting like an entitled brat <laughs> while, he, <laughs> while he outsmarts everyone who takes him on at the game of Tadic. I think that of all the three of these different plots, they're all really interesting, but obviously the John and Aaron one is the most visceral because that's about life and death. Their plot starts with them at this really bickery and negative place. It starts with the whole crew at that place, but Aaron and John are the ones that are trapped in a shuttle together going through Aaron's version of Driver's Ed. So <laughs> <laughs> it's really great. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> so I just want to play a clip that kind of sets up their character arc. Aaron, lighten up, have some fun. Fun? How am I to have fun? Oh, I don't know how you're supposed to have fun, but this is fun. This is Top Gun. This is the need for speed. You like this stuff. Admit it. I have no need for speed. Yeah, she does. I see it in your eye all the time. You miss the adrenaline of combat flying. I miss the teamwork of combat flying. The reason why I agree to teach you to do this is because you may become vaguely of some use to me one day in battle. Oh. Well, thank you for that vote of confidence. Well, you may have noticed we're short of hands. I didn't exactly have much choice. Watch out for the starboard thrusters. You're banking too sharply. I got it. What exactly do you mean by vaguely useful? Well, you're hardly a quick learner, are you? Oh, are you trying to tell me you weren't the least bit challenged learning to fly one of these things? Not challenged the way you seem to be. And you have it easy here, peacekeeper training. There's no room for mistakes. You screw up on the last day of simulation flying, you die. Right. The simulator kills you. <laughs> I just love Aaron. You might be vaguely useful to me someday. <laughs> yeah. And John's all hurt. And I'm like, John, that's because you're useless. <laughs> I know. Yeah, and he's got this look on his face when she tells him that, you know, they die in peacekeeper training if they fail. <laughs> like, you just can't believe it. 
There's no learning curve here. Yeah, there's no learning curve for the peacekeepers. It's like you do it or you die, which actually yeah. I think that that falls in line with everything we've seen from the peacekeepers because they have enough supplemental civations wandering around the galaxy that like they could just pick somebody else up yeah not to mention that they're breeding their own soldiers and so they have this endless supply of replacements and so basically that's actually pretty efficient and kind of scary way to get your highly efficient fighting force like anyone who can't think quickly or is slow or clumsy or whatever they're out when they're kids Mm -hmm. you're just left with all the people who can hack it yeah (laughs) All the people that made it past the simulator that kills them. (laughs) (laughs) Walk out and get executed. Oh, man. So that's Aaron teaching John to drive the transport pod. So they're in the middle of this empty, empty space. And John even makes a crack that it's like the mall parking lot on a Sunday morning. And then they hit something. And it is the flax, but they don't know that. But it's just this thing. It stops them cold and it damages the transport pod, Mm -hmm. which causes all sorts of trouble because there's fires and torn things and they have no power. So they have to figure out what to do. Yeah. One of the things Farscape does really well is that it's so that John is the one that always makes people misunderstand. I think that a lot of times when you have like alien shows it's like the alien will say something and the people will be like what i don't understand and in in farscape it's always john saying things like he'll use colloquialisms or he'll use you know different southern sayings and aaron and the rest of them are the ones that are like oh my god i don't understand the translator microbes must have (laughs) like must have mistranslated that and we've talked about that being like a a little bit of him protecting himself and like him well he's teasing them too you know i mean here, here he's he's deliberately goading Aaron with it, you know, the need for speed from Top Gun mm-hmm. and, and all of that. <laughs> Just <laughs> pointing out all the things that she missed that he thinks she, she, he's reading into what she's missed, but doing it through these, these colloquialisms. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of fun to watch, actually. Yeah, I love that. Even though it's only like five minutes or whatever, it's not even five minutes. I think it's like three minutes. This episode sets up because it has so much going on. The setup is so tight it's really good tv so anyway so they hit the flax they all fall down and there is (laughs) it's a short clip but it is a classic john aaron will they won't they Mulder scully i can't think of any (laughs) other like sexual tension that lasts for seasons and seasons the way that john and aaron does but so i want to play the um this short clip and if you are a fan of john and aaron this is probably burned in your memory (laughs) Yes, you. Yeah, just Pidgey. Uncomfortable? Can I get you a pillow? <laughs> so John has landed on top of her, and they're having like the smoldering glance at each other. And the music picks up. Like there's a change in the music from the threatening, oh my gosh, they're jerking around, there's something gonna hit Aaron. And then they land, and he's on top of her, and the music swells. It's, mm-hmm. oh, <laughs> my shipper heart is going to thump, to thump this whole routine. <laughs> this is a show that knows what it's doing when it comes to John and Aaron. Oh my god. <laughs> It really does. And this is, I mean, we've had in the past several episodes, we have had them connecting and bonding over different things. Like John says he'd take Aaron home to Earth if she'd had nowhere else to go. And they've had these little moments of connection and stuff. 
But this is the episode where it really takes off where the sparks fly. And I literally and figuratively because there's sparks flying all around them and they have to put out actual fires. But yeah, this is this is where the, the John and Aaron ship really leaves the port. And it's it's glorious. I got to say it's glorious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> OK, and I have to also point out that I think we forget because Claudia Black has gone on to do a lot of science fiction stuff. And she's one of those actors where like her beauty never fades. And she perpetually looks like she is drinking the blood of young children or something because she (laughs) always looks stunning and gorgeous and she always looks like she's 20. Except in here, she actually is young. I think she's in her 20s or like early 30s. Do you know? Yeah, something like that. She's not in her early, it's either late 20s or early 30s. Yeah. Because I know they recast, they originally had someone for Aaron that they decided was too young and then they cast Claudia Black afterwards because she was older. Mm-hmm. But so in this episode, especially in the beginning part before they, you know, start getting thrown around and, you know, start looking nuts, she is so pretty. Like, you <laughs> look at her and you're like, oh, I guess she has aged like marginally in the past, <laughs> in the past decade but she's so pretty here Mm -hmm. yeah she's got her hair down and it's beautiful and wavy she's still wearing you know no nonsense outfit i think she's is she still in like the the shirt and vest combo yeah she's still wearing that yeah which is basically her signature look for season one and also i I gotta say ben browder's arms are very nice throughout Mm -hmm. anytime you have like john lifting things or doing sciencey stuff (laughs) i'm always like who are you? Like, what did they think of you at MIT? Because you don't look like you went to MIT. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, both of them are so pretty. Okay. They really are. They really are. So, take a breath. Okay, I'm real excited now because we're talking about John and Aaron. So they have to fix the transport pod. And there's there's a couple things going on. So they're out of power. Their environmentals are a little screwed. And there's this clip I want to play that also shows the value that John does bring to Moya's crew. And even though Aaron is constantly disparaging him, and as we heard earlier, you know, he's only vaguely useful to her, his technical expertise is really valuable, and it's really valuable here. So I'm going to play that. Gotta move on, Crichton. The message boy's almost ready, so we'll need power to launch it. Working as fast as I can, Aaron, but these schematics are hard to read. Like half cat scan, half blueprint. I know you don't read them at all. Ridiculous, it's tech work. What happens if you crash land your prowler? You have to repair it. Uh, we're not trained to repair, we're trained to find and secure somebody else's shit. Secure, as in take by force. Well, it's uh, learning to read those. Not today, it doesn't. So, John's the one who can read the schematic, and Aaron's the one who, if her prowler goes down, she is going to go kill somebody and take their ship. Mm-hmm. So, again, it's this dichotomy of the two worlds that they come from. And in this episode, they both have to end up fixing things. And so they, they're sending out this message buoy to Moya because the communications are down. And so then they're like, okay, they send out, you know, we're in trouble to Moya and they have no way of knowing if they get that message. Mm-hmm. And it's just the two of them by themselves have to make the decision if they're going to rescue themselves or if they're going to wait for rescue from the others. And it kind of goes to show how much do they trust Stan and Dargo to come after them. Mm-hmm. And this is getting into kind of our next plot line. But they do have kind of a reason not to necessarily trust that the crew would prioritize them, especially when the crew's own life is in danger or when the crew has other priorities. Because Dargo initially is kind of like, oh, well, we're first going to go to election ship and then maybe we'll go get them. Mm-hmm. And so it is, they're not quite the leverage crew yet. Let me put it that way. They're not <laughs> quite the... It's a good analogy. You know, like the family first 
everybody else second. They're kind of, yeah. you know, still in this place where it's like me first. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you bring up the family thing because Stans, who is our guest star, he is the garbologist that comes aboard Moya and warns them about the flax being out there. One of the first things he says when Zan says, you know, we have two of our people out there who are potentially in trouble with the flax. He's like, are they family? And she's like, no. He's like, good. It's never good to lose family. Mm -hmm. So he's essentially writing them off. And the acknowledgement is, is they are not that gelled group yet where they do consider themselves family. Mm -hmm. I want to play one more clip of John and Aaron where they, where they make, the, make the decision of what to do. Well, whatever it is, we have to find a way to break free. Any suggestions? That stress boy got away. Well, I guess we just wait for Darwin and the others to come rescue us. I'll deal with environmental. <laughs> I just love that because they look at each other and they just immediately are like, okay, we don't trust them. We're going to go fix the ship ourselves. <laughs> it's not just they're both like, oh, I'm going to go do this. It's literally because they're saying it, but there's like this sparking sexual tension between them. Oh, yeah. Because it's like, yeah. and the, that's the reason they're both like immediately like, oh, I'm going to go do this. It's because they're, <laughs> it's like their option is either <laughs> to like stand there and then like, you know, snatch their faces together and kiss each other because uh, <laughs> it's like watching two magnets. <laughs> you know, or to like go do something else on the other side of the ship from each other. <laughs> so I just love the way they say it simultaneously, though, and then just go. It's like the huddle and break. Yeah. So they go to the other side of the ship rather than make out. And um, <laughs> they try and they try and get away. And in the process of trying to get away, they end up making it worse because the flax is I think we're supposed to think of it kind of like tar. Or something like yeah. that, where like you can't get out, and actually in the struggle to get out, you end up injuring yourself more. Yeah, it's like one of those knots that gets tighter the more you pull at it. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to pull themselves out, and in the process of trying to pull themselves out, they end up damaging the ship, and the ship is slowly filling with pure oxygen, which is very bad because earlier they had a fire, and so you know that they very easily could just torch themselves alive, and right. also because I think. I, and I actually didn't understand this part. I think they're both going to die. Yeah, so it's one of the environmental lines is crushed, and I think that's supposed to imply that this life support that's going to fail. Mm. So they have the pure oxygen that's filling up, but that's only going to last so long, and they don't necessarily have, like, CO2 scrubbers or anything like that going on. So they have to fix this environmental line. John says they can weld it, and he knows how to weld, but they can't light a welding torch, which they do have, in pure oxygen, because as we know, pure oxygen explodes when there's fire involved. So they have to, they decide to get into their uh, spacesuits and they're just going to vent the atmosphere and then fix it. Except because they've been shaking around, as we know, one of the helmets is broken and it's John's helmet that is broken. And only one of them has a working spacesuit and that's Aaron. Okay, I, this was a question I had though. Those are uniform spacesuits. This kind of felt... Don't think too hard about it. <laughs> I know. It's just like this part of the plot where I'm like, you know, I'm 100% on board with pushing Aaron outside her comfort zone. And obviously it led to like some really good tension and some really good like, you know, chemistry going on. But I, I'm also like, really? Well, 
Well, the way I think about it is that the, the spacesuits come in small, medium, and large, and Aaron is in a small, and John is in a large, and the helmets, for whatever reason, that doesn't make any sense, are not uniform because clearly they have not had enough disasters where this is an issue. <laughs> I mean, <but laughs> I don't you see know. what I'm saying there, right? <laughs> oh, totally. I actually had the same thought when I was watching, and I was like, come on, guys, even NASA has solved this problem already. Yeah. Well, and I'm also <laughs> like, okay, so Aaron... Yeah, it just, I don't know, it just didn't make sense to me. Because I'm like, her head isn't that much bigger. If my husband had to wear a baseball hat that fit me, it would probably fit him. It would just fit him tightly. Right, Or, but not even that. Like, the helmet could be a different size, but the attachment at the neck should be the same size. Yeah. So that they'd be interchangeable. And that would be how you would be able to make it work. And so, yeah, the helmet that Aaron wore should have been able to fit onto onto John's, maybe. I don't know. Okay. Hand wave. Plot! Plot! <laughs> <laughs> hand wave, hand wave, plot, plot. You know. <laughs> Science is actually not Farscape's strong suit, and apparently neither is engineering. <laughs> okay. But so for hand wave, hand wave, science, exclamation point, reasons, <laughs> instead of John killing Aaron with a shot and then bringing her back with a nerve shot, which is apparently standard sebation triage medical procedure, by the way. Yeah. So instead of that happening, um, John is going to be the one that she is going to give a shot to that will kill him. And then she will have to wake him up with the nerve shot. Which kind of results in an interesting thing because John doesn't trust that sebation chemicals will work on him. So he insists on teaching Aaron CPR. You know what? I got to applaud his thinking on this because I wouldn't trust alien chemicals to work on me either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's true. And I think that, okay, in a few episodes ago during DNA Mad Scientist, I'd actually forgotten this to mention it on the podcast. But when he realizes that he doesn't have a map, that all the others have seen their home world, and he's the only one that doesn't have a map, well, he and Aaron, um, he starts getting really, really drunk. And Aaron is like, and he's like drinking something. And Aaron's like, are you even going to analyze that? Like, usually you're very paranoid about drinking strange substances. Right. And he's like, whatever, I'm getting drunk. And this kind of <laughs> felt like that too, where like, this is very in character for him to be like very careful about what goes in his body. Yeah. Especially with the stakes so high because it's death. Death is on the line. <laughs> Sorry, nice. I have Princess Bride running through my head right now. <laughs> nice. I love it. That's like actually a pretty good segue because death and the conversations about death that they have and the become kind of one of the themes of what's going on between Aaron and John, right? Because John is going to die. Aaron's going to have to make the repair and then bring him back to life. And it turns out that she has to make a decision about whether to finish the repair or bring John back to life. So I want to play one of two conversations that they have about death. And this is the one that happens before John takes the kill shot. Hey, when uh, Sebastian's die, what do you guys believe happens? You believe in an afterlife, heaven and hell, all that jazz? Humans believe, well, some believe that this is like this, this bright light and you, uh, you end up somewhere else along with your friends, family, relatives. All the people have died before you. Does that ring a bell? Sebastian's believe when you die, you die, you go nowhere, you see nothing. I'll find out in a minute, huh? Okay, 180 microns. Yes, I know. Yeah, sorry if I'm repeating myself. It's just, you know, I don't want to take any chances with this, so. I won't let you down, John. Ah, oh, this, this is gonna hurt like crap, isn't it? Trust me, it's not gonna hurt a bit. Aaron is such a liar. It hurts a lot. 
<laughs> it really does. And he goes into this seizure and then calls her on it later. It's, it's actually pretty funny. But yeah, so John's wondering what it's going to be like to die. Is there heaven? Is there hell? What is the beliefs that Aaron and Aaron and her people have compared to the beliefs that humans have about what happens to your soul after death? And the reason I want to talk about it is because they're so different. You know, the religious kind of view and then there's this, there's nothing. There's, there's no comfort and it's just, it fits in with this peacekeeper view of very straightforward thinking about what happens and there's not a lot of creativity that goes into thinking about life beyond. You know, everything is the now, everything is the present. There's no reason to think about down the line what happens to you afterwards. Mm -hmm. And I think that does really fit in with the worldview that we have seen from the peacekeepers where their present matters so much to them because it's all there is. I mean, I'm not saying that people that do not believe in an afterlife don't believe that their actions have moral consequences. I think it's, I think in a lot of cases, it's the opposite that, um, especially on earth, you know, we do, we do tend to believe that our actions have to be moral. And I think that with peacekeepers, it's kind of because when you die, you die, you go nowhere, you see nothing. There's this idea that you have to be good in the now and their good is loyal. You have to be good in your unit. You have to be perfect. You have to be above every other creature that you meet. And that's kind of what we see yeah. in Erin, you know, is that fundamentally her sense of self is based on everything that happens now. Not what's going to happen in the future, not what's really happened in the past, but now. Yeah, and her capability in the moment. And we see that, you know, as her self-worth is based on how she is as a warrior and her honor as a warrior and all those things you just described. So that's very much embedded in her. Mm-hmm. And then you have John who's confronting death, his first death, and just he's scared. I mean, you can clearly hear it in his voice and he's really scared about what's about to happen and, and will he come back at all. Mm-hmm. So he does come back. And yes. Aaron, and this is this is the cool part because as viewers, we're not a hundred percent what's going on because there's no narration. You just see Aaron rushing to do this thing, and then she's kind of knocked out. And when she wakes up, the nerve vial that was going to wake John up has broken. So she turns on the environmentals, rips off her mask, and she starts giving John CPR. And then I want to play the clip from when he wakes up. Aaron, you should have kept working. Finish the repair, at least one of us would have survived. To be sitting here alone now? I chose not to. Our peacekeepers were trained to fight alone, survive alone, die alone. Well, it appears my training is failing me. I don't want to die alone. Yeah, so Aaron, Aaron makes the choice to save John and bring him back to life instead of finishing the repairs because she does not want to die alone. And I think that's so interesting. It's so in keeping with what we've learned of Aaron so far, because she said over and over again, you know, I was part of a unit. I was, you know, I've never been alone in my life. And and that's the one thing that really terrifies her that comes out Mm -hmm. again right here where she chooses to not die alone. Yeah. And I think it is really powerful because we've seen how broken up she was when she found out that her old unit now hates her. So this not wanting to die alone kind of feels like her really beginning to form a unit with John. Yeah. Yeah. And I just I just love that that consistent beat for her coming through. And then I'm going to play the next little bit of that scene where you really see see that fear that she has of dying finally. Like she's been so calm throughout all of this until now when they're pretty much assured that they're going to die. What did you see? Hmm? You know, after the kill shot when you were dead, 
Did you see the things that, you know, that, that humans believe, the light, friends? No. No, I didn't. Unless I was black. I don't know, maybe suspicions are right. Maybe there's nothing after this. Maybe. Maybe. I wasn't supposed to die that time. Well. Maybe you'll find out for certain this time. She's the one asking about the afterlife and is there something there? Mm-hmm. Which, and that's kind of kind of cool. I, I yeah, I mean, I really do love that, and I love that their positions have kind of switched. Where now she is hoping for something, and he is the one that feels like the present matters more now because yes. there's not this possibility of something else. But yes. but if you're going to keep watching Farscape, then you want to keep in mind that this implies that Aaron did have family, underlined, mm-hmm. and friends that had died yeah. that she did want to see. Yeah. Spoiler family. Oh my gosh. Family spoiler. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so much. And it's interesting you say that because right before John was saying, I thought peacekeepers were trained to fight alone and survive alone and die alone. And, and Aaron says, my training fails me. So it's kind of like there's this dichotomy between what the, what the training is. The training is no family, no friends, no attachments. You are on your own. You must work to be the best peacekeeper you can be by yourself. And yet the lived reality that Aaron has is she has friends, she has comrades, she has a unit, she's part of this organization and that never lets her be alone. And what she misses is the teamwork is what she says earlier in the episode. And so there's this this real difference between what the the peacekeepers want their soldiers to be and what they actually are. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really interesting and very nuanced too, you know, because it's like there's not this stereotype of the soldiers being all these strong, independent, you know, action heroes, even though that's what they're supposed to be like, whereas they are actually these units that really do depend on each other. Mm -hmm. So after bringing John back to life, John and Aaron realize they're going to die. And they do what any two mammals do when there's the very real possibility of immediate death, which is (laughs) they kind of start going to town on each other. Oh, yeah. Basically, as soon as Aaron says, I think we're going to find out we're going to die, they look at each other and then they start making out and then they start, you know, going the rest of the way. It's pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then Dargo comes in and saves them, which brings us to the Dargo plotline. Yeah, let's talk about Dargo. Yeah. So I got to do the setup, which is that there's this character that comes aboard, Moya. (sighs) Okay, this one is difficult. I am going to use the pronoun she- because eventually Stans reveals to all of us that she is the female of her species. However, for 90% of the episode, they refer to Stans as a he. So Stans comes aboard and she presents herself as a garbologist, which I took a really long time. I kept thinking it was a grubologist. And I was like, is that like somebody (laughs) that studies food? And I was like, I don't understand. (laughs) And then I realized it was supposed to be like a garbage ologist and I was like oh okay (laughs) (laughs) she does have rotten food on her ship that she offers Dargo to eat yeah 
Which, I mean, like, okay, like, a lot of rotten food actually won't kill you, (laughs) you know? Yeah, right. She comes aboard Moya to warn them about the flax that Aaron and John are caught in already. So Moya avoids it. Mm -hmm. And Zan kind of trusts her. Dargo doesn't. He looks her up and he's like, oh, she has this whole, you know, laundry list of crimes on the Peacekeeper database. Which I'm like, (laughs) Dargo, come on now. Like, that's a little, (laughs) that's a little pot calling the kettle black there. That's what Zan says, actually. She's like, you know, we're Peacekeeper prisoners too so i want to play the clip where dargo confronts stans about his past or her past sorry what are you doing i was just about to race it i had him right when i wanted him you have a criminal record with the peacekeepers do you have any idea how difficult that is in this i've got a lot of records with a lot of people that's who i am doesn't mean his money's no good I deserve it i never robbed anybody well i used to rob anybody but now i'm an honest scabologist ask anyone i can give you a list of names what's a couple of nights <laughs> I used to be a Zanate. One of the pirates who run the flax and loot ships that get caught in it. I can prove it. Oh my god. <laughs> I, I think my favorite part is that she's such a fast talker because she's like, she's like, <laughs> I, you know, but now I'm honest. Well, I'm kind of honest. I'm like, I have a list of names I could give you. Well, a couple names. <laughs> <laughs> and the smile, she has this really great, like, fake smile. Like, face is blank, and then suddenly she does the smile that's like, hey, please trust me. I know. <laughs> it's I really love it. funny. Uh, and then, like, later on, the way that she proves that she was one of the Zenitian pirates is she pulls down her pants and reveals, like, the, the gang tattoos on her The on gang her tattoo thigh. from prison, yeah. And, like, Rigel this whole time is like, ah, oh, and he's, like, covering his eyes. And then he's like, <laughs> hey, um, aren't you missing something? And Zan is, like, really tactful, being like, well, you're, like, a bipedal man. Anthropod, something yeah, anthropod. like that. And then you're, she's like, you kind of seem to be missing. Yeah, well, she says, I can never quite catch it, but their species name is, like, Ubinus or something like that. Mm -hmm. and they're not cut from the same mold as how she puts it and I just want to point out one thing because this drives me nuts in fanfic and stuff Zenitian is not the species Zenitian is like the nationality or affiliation the species is like the Ubinus or whatever it is someone else with better ears than me is going to have to listen and and find out but the Zenitian pirates are like saying American pirates okay nice yeah well that's my interpretation anyway no no no. I mean that and that actually makes sense (laughs) yeah yeah that actually makes a lot of sense because I think that the same way that if aliens come to earth people aren't going to be like well I'm an earthling people are like well I'm an American yeah and then 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 you'd be like or people wouldn't even be like and I think that's interesting because in Farscape we tend to be like oh she's a Delvian from Delvia right (laughs) Rigel is a Hynerian from Hyneria and I don't actually think that Darga's planet is called Luxar but I'm thinking that for some reason it's like the Lux and home world yeah we might actually never find out if the planet has a name other than that I can't remember yeah but they always just say like the Lux and home world so maybe yeah. the planet actually is just called the Luxon homeworld. <laughs> anyway, irregardless, this is the first time that we've had a species where their planet name, species name, and like affiliation, affiliation is not the same. Yeah. So anyway, Stans is awesome. I love her. Stans is hilarious. And her ship. Oh my God. We had this little discussion about whether or not we could provide a clip from when she and Dargo go on their ship. because So they know Aaron and John are out there. Dargo wants to go find them, but he also kind of wants to go check out this Luxon warship that might have maps. 
And so they're going to go check out the Luxon ship and then go find John and Aaron. But Stanza's ship, it's a disaster. Like the whack it method of space flight because mm-hmm. he actually has to whack the furnace to make it work or some part of it. And then they're burning dolls that he's collected to keep it going. And then there's all sorts of weird switches. There's like it, a bellows and like chains yeah. all over the place. And uh, and it smells. And like a hand pump. <laughs> it's just so ridiculously, awesomely awful. And you're like, I would never go to that ship. Or at least that was my reaction is like, that is not space worthy. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's also, you're right. I think that the ship and the Stan's character are my favorite part of this episode. Like, okay. Oh, yeah. My, my second favorite, obviously, apart from the John and Aaron stuff. But in terms of world building, Stan's ship is just so, 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 so cool. Because like, even as he's approaching them, Pilot is like, you know, hey, there's a ship approaching and they signaling they want to come aboard. And everybody's like, well, does it have weapons? And Pilot's like, I don't know, kind of. There's got pieces of weapons, (laughs) but nothing that actually makes like like a full weapon. Yeah. (laughs) It's Uh, just like, it's it's a garbage ship that's made up of different garbage and that's how it's run. So Stans and Dargo, they find the Luxon ship and they're about to get on board But Stans has told Dargo that this pod that Aaron and John are on has vented all of its atmosphere. And Dargo is like, well, they've got a second, you know, they've got a backup container full of air. They'll be fine. But there's this expression on his face. And so Stans is about to dock them on the Luxon ship. And then Dargo and he have this conversation. Come on, you've got to be a bit excited. You're 15 paces away from your own Luxon assault piercer. The maps. You'll be able to find your son. You've got to be looking forward to seeing your son. Huh? Yes. But when I do, I want to be able to look him in the eye. So Dargo's whole dilemma of this episode is, does he go rescue John and Aaron first, his comrades, or does he go find these map fibers to go find Jothi? and get home and is pitting these two things that he values and he starts out by saying okay we're going to get the map fibers first because the the ship is scheduled to be melted down for scrap or parts or whatever but he gets to this point where he actually has to choose what is more important to him at this point in time and at the beginning of the episode you're like Dargo what are you doing why aren't you going rescuing your friends because we know the audience knows how much danger John and Aaron are in because of all the damage the pod has taken but then it's later that his conscience comes out and you know the decisions he makes today affect how he sees himself and how he wants his son to see him and I think that's a kind of a nice note for Dargo it's like he does care about honor and he does care about living up to the agreements and the alliances he's made with both John and Aaron in the past episodes and the relationship they've built up mm-hmm. and it's something he can't live with killing them or letting them die through not rescuing them mm-hmm. it goes back to our earlier conversation about family and whether or not Dargo considers them family the same way that he considers Jothi family and obviously he doesn't. There's another point I want to bring up about them going to look for maps on this Luxon ship and it was brought to us by a listener and that question was do they really not know where they are because (laughs) it seems like any ship that had some sort of star charts would be able to at least position them relative to where they were. Mm -hmm. So it is kind of an interesting question just because there's a lot of peacekeepers that seem to find them and peacekeepers seem to at least be in the uncharted territories a lot and you find, you know, 
clearly stands has been imprisoned by the peacekeepers and so he's been to peacekeeper territory and now back into the uncharted territory and so it's kind of this it is this question of do they really not know where they are well so in the premiere episode that's one of the first things pilot says after they starburst to escape is we are somewhere else and they don't know where they are at least moya doesn't know where they are and i think with regard to the peacekeepers i mean they're kind of in the fringe very fringe area of the uncharted territories where there's still a lot of crossover like they're like in the frontier border zone where there's the porous border going back and forth so that that's the explanation that i kind of had canon for why there's peacekeepers coming in and they're known and why Stans was captured by the peacekeepers and you know he's back out but yeah it kind of i like your question though because this is the first thing you learn in orienteering, right? Is like your your map and your compass are great, but they're useless unless you know your starting point. So let's say they did get star charts, but they still don't know where they are. I don't know that those star charts would be super useful. <laughs> yeah, because they also need like reference points and they need to be able to interpret them and the data has to be compatible with Moya. I mean, presumably it would be because they seem to have fairly compatible technology across all these ships and things. Mm-hmm. But yeah. yeah. Okay. And so the other thing is I mentioned when we were first introducing Stans that Stans is played by a male human actor. And all of the characters, including the Zenitian pirate captain guy, refer to Stans by the male pronoun. Yeah. And then it's revealed that Stans is actually the female of her species. And there's this moment that I want to play, and then I kind of want to talk about Farscape being a little bit transphobic here. There's bound to be another Luxon ship stuck in there somewhere. I thought maybe we could go and look for it together. We go together. I'm lonely. Everybody needs a mate, Cardago. Even you. A mate? I am the female of the species. You know that, don't you? In fact, uh, false modesty aside, I'm... uh, (laughs) I'm considered quite the Zenitan beauty. Yeah, so the joke here is obviously that All the characters have been thinking they're interacting with a male, and then it turns out to be female, who comes on to Dargo and is kind of like, hey, let's, you know, go away together and Mm -hmm. garbologist together. Right, and Dargo has this really stunned look on his face, like a little bit frozen in shock by the revelation, and then John is teasing him about giving them time together, and then Stans, once they start to leave, starts shouting, I love you, I love you, after Dargo. Yeah. Which, okay, and then also, I mean, I'm going to assume, I'm going to assume that Farscape isn't actually this evil, but at this point, Darko has tied Stans to the controls of his ship because Stans wanted to go garbologize and Dargo wanted to go rescue his friends. So it's kind of this awkward that he's like literally leaving this guy <laughs> tied up, or this woman tied up. The, the tying up didn't bother me as much because it's very much antagonist kind of behavior, how you treat them, you know? Yeah. She wants to go do one thing. He wants to go do something else. He's larger than she is because Drago's larger than everybody and basically makes it happen. Yeah, no, I mean, and I know, again, like the tying up wasn't the problem, but my problem was the implication that he left this person tied up on their ship. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But like, because there clearly wasn't a way for her to get out of yeah. the chain bindings. <laughs> like when they're leaving at the end? Yeah, so I'm going to assume yeah. that somebody went back in and untied her. Yeah, But anyway, so yeah, it's kind of, I don't know, it's a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, and what makes it uncomfortable from the 2016 perspective is because it's how it's played, and this is directly related to how the show or the episode itself is written, it's definitely played for laughs. 
And it's not necessarily a bad thing that it is. And it's, you know, it's a reveal that not all aliens are the same, but there's the tone of it. It very much makes stands the joke. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's what's making us uncomfortable with it. Just because from the perspective of where we are and how we would see it these days, it's it's just different. And maybe it's not even that different from how it would be played in today's audiences on TV. I mean, TV today is still horrible, but that might be where where the perspective shift or the the, the discomfort is coming from. Yeah, I think you're right about the. I think that the reason we're uncomfortable is because it is being played for laughs, and because even though technically Stans isn't a transsexual character, there there is that gender, a little bit of gender. The characters perceiving her as one gender and her real gender being something else, and then that being the joke. Right. So it's yeah, it's it's gross. Not really okay. By 2016 standards, probably wasn't okay by 2006 standards either. So, <laughs> actually, when was yeah. this episode released? 20... Uh, 99. 99. Yeah. So probably not okay by 99 standards either, but. You know, you get what you get yeah. for a sci-fi TV show. And so Dan's touts herself as a Zenitian beauty, and she's actually being tracked by her ex. She says that the pirates don't really have a hierarchy, but let's just call Basically, him... Basically, Yeah, the, the captain. Yeah, yeah, by her old boss. who is, Whose name is Crackage. I kind of like that name. It's all very consonant. So the Zenitian pirates show up on Moya, where Zan and Rigel and Pilot are, while all this other stuff is happening with John and Aaron and Dargo and Stans, and they are looking for Stans, the Zenitian pirates, because she basically sold them out when she was in prison to protect herself. And so mm-hmm. they want to know where she is. Now, the way this is all set up is Rigel, who we mentioned at the beginning as being a total brat, he has been basically acting like a three-year-old child trying to get attention from Zan because he is bored, 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 <laughs> bored, bored. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love, I love when he's like, at the beginning, they're having this discussion about like Aaron and John and, and why they aren't back yet. And he's doing this thing that like children do where he's like making this noise and then he's watching how every time he makes this noise, Zan's shoulders just go up and up and up until they're literally like at her ears and she like turns around and she does the thing that every parent or teacher has done at some point in their life where they are like, if you don't stop that, I'll... And then he's like, you're gonna what? (laughs) (laughs) So what he's banging is this board game which makes no sense but this board game called Tadek and he wants someone to play with him or be entertained somehow. First Stans plays with him a little bit and that right before he's discovered to have a peacekeeper record but the main point of the board is Rigel challenges Crackage our Zenitian pirate to a game in order to keep him occupied and from chasing after Stans and Dargo as an extension. And Rigel is very arrogant about this. He's like, I am the best player in the world. How can you stand up to me? And so he sets out this game. And meanwhile, Zan is like furious. She is like, I cannot believe that you are doing this and being obnoxious and betting these things that we have on the ship that are not yours to give away. Well, and at one point he tries to bet Moya. But Krakich knows better because earlier he'd been like, oh, yeah, hey, we noticed your ship is pregnant. Good luck with that. I tried to take a pregnant <laughs> Leviathan once and I lost 80 men. So Rajul's yeah. like, well, I bet the ship. And Krakish is like, no way. I don't want your ship. <laughs> yeah. And so so how Rigel ends up raising the stakes is like, I'll give you the whereabout of Stans, which infuriates Zan because they were trying to pretend that they had never met Stans to begin with. And so basically Rigel has sold them out. And that's Zan's perspective of it. And so so then the game is really tense and they're playing all these moves and the game is ridiculous. I'm like, I have no idea what the rules are. It just looks dumb. But I'm sure 
you know, many board games look dumb on the surface unless you know the rules. I don't think they have rules, though. So they're moving these tiles around, and Rigel ends up losing. And they have to give up the communications frequency Dargo has on his comm unit, which is also the location where Stans is. When Xan comes back after the, the Zanetians have gone off to chase down Stans and Dargo, there's this really great scene that I'm going to play. Never be rid of them. You wanted them to leave. Didn't you? Yes, but I... You didn't expect them to leave us unscathed unless they thought they were leaving with something of value, did you? You gave them the comm frequency. The wrong frequency, yes. I told Pilot to change it the minute Crackage stepped on board. Where are they headed, Pilot? Not exactly certain. I could plot it for you. No, don't bother. As long as it's far from here. Oh, it's certainly that. You lost to Crackage on purpose. You think it was easy? He's an abominable player. A switched-off DRD would have made a better shame for itself. Oh, please. Laughing is what the game's all about. <laughs> I want to know why everybody on this crew always underestimates Rigel. It's because he's small and annoying and they don't want to like him. That's my theory anyway. Yeah, because here you could see that he was smart enough to know that that even if he had left, Krakich would have taken something. And yeah. so he was like, well, why don't I give him something that he thinks he wants and just mess with him? And, and yeah. I love the implication. Okay, and there's a couple of things because <laughs> Rigel presents this game as something that he used to play when he was Dominar. And so there was a part of me that was like, well, maybe everybody always just let you win. Mm -hmm. If you're playing against the ruler of 600 billion people, you don't want to be the guy that beats him. You know what I mean? You really don't. <laughs> but then at the same time, it turns out that he is very good at it because he's like, that guy was an abominable player. <laughs> I had to really work to lose to him. You know, and he had yeah. to do it in a really smart way because he had to introduce this move that Stans used so that Krakich would take the bait, essentially. Yeah. Well, it just goes back to showing Rigel's layers of thinking about things. You know, he's the character that always has an escape route that, mm -hmm. that does think a couple moves ahead. As obnoxious as he is, he actually is quite shrewd and he always has been shown as, as fairly shrewd. Mm -hmm. That's what I love about this is like even Zan, who's been so annoyed with him all episode, underestimates him. And she's one of the characters that has the most rapport with Rigel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah. So there's another question I had here, which was... Is Zan really out of character in this episode? Because it starts with, like I said, her really, really irritated. And we've seen her kind of bugged before. And we saw her in DNA Mad Scientist where she was acting very manipulative. But she's like, I don't know, she's acting like any other character would. She does not have any form of inner peace. She's definitely afraid, you mm -hmm. know. And she's definitely, in the whole episode, she spends just furious at, at Rigel. So I don't know, in character, out of character, thoughts? I actually think she's in character here. And I think it actually shows some of the strength of Farscape has in writing its characters. Because she gets to have this range of emotions. Like, it's not just Zan the priest who is always calm and collected and going to be the nice one and going to be the peacemaker. Even in some of the early episodes, like Throne for a Lost, like she's irritated with Rigel when he's being all presumptuous and making them set up a throne for him. She goes along with it because that's the plan. But there is a little bit of that irritation here. And here we just see more of it. And I think what I like about having her be in character because it shows it shows that she is this this being that has this range of emotions. 
And like a bad roommate will bring out the worst in anybody. And that's what Rigel is essentially right here. <laughs> that's why I like to think of her as in character here. I mean, she has this concept of herself of and this way of projecting to the outside world of who she is. But then at home on Moya, you know, all these other things come out. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point about how the person we are in the world or the person we are at church isn't the person we are at work, isn't the person we are at home. And, it, yeah. you know, maybe it isn't the person we are with our intimate partners, you know. Right. Right. And so it's like you're kind of allowed to be all different things. You're right. I think it is interesting if we consider this this episode as in character for her, because it yeah. does it does maybe take her from like a stereotype into something that feels more real because the stereotype is, you know, the character that's at peace and, you know, mm -hmm. never gets mad at anybody and, you know, is completely <laughs> mellow all <laughs> the time. You know, the Scooby character. Wait, was Scooby the dog or the or the pothead? Uh, the dog, maybe? I don't know. The only thing I've really seen a Scooby-Doo is the Futurama episode that did Scooby-Doo. Yeah, that's so funny. Well, I'm talking <laughs> about the pothead, okay. whatever his name was. Right. But actually, this kind of brings us full circle because this episode is out of order, right? Mm -hmm. So on the DVDs, The Flax comes after Rhapsody in Blue, which is an episode that's all about Zan and her confronting some of her darker impulses. Mm -hmm. And we'll get into that when we do the podcast for, for that episode next. So you could almost argue that if you look at it in the DVD order, there is some of that past trauma, you know, that past conflict that is manifesting itself some way in her irritation with Rigel. Mm -hmm. That's a possible explanation too. Yeah. Yeah. So if you, if you did view it in that order, then Rhapsody in Blue really would have influenced this episode. Yeah. But like we said, there's this, you know, this isn't really an episode where you need to, it needs to be in order, in order. It's kind of okay to. I think you can look at it both ways. Yeah. So white shirt watch, John is wearing a gray shirt. Yep. Erin is wearing her super badass, very prototypical Erin outfit. Mm -hmm. And they also end up in the spacesuits for a while, which <laughs> as you actually <laughs> see when they start making out are very hard to get off in the heat of the moment. <laughs> <laughs> right. Pilot this episode is hilarious. First, he like gets all of their attention by like air quotes pressing the wrong calm frequency <laughs> and like releasing this like horrible like bright like ear tone thing that, like, like a high school bell or something yeah it's very annoying and they're like <laughs> and they're like, like okay oh, sorry completely uh, not sorry and yeah pretty good episode overall yeah so what would you rate this one the flax there's a lot going on. I think it's a very tightly written episode. There's no flab on this episode at all. If we could have, we probably would have just quoted the entire episode. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. And that would have been very effective. So I would give this one uh, like a four, maybe even a 4.5. Yeah, know? same here. Yeah, in that, in that four or five range. I love this episode. That's so good. I love Stans. I'm really sorry we <laughs> never see her again. Yeah. All right. So coming up next... We have Rhapsody in Blue, which is Zan-centric. So get on your like emotional, like pull on your emotional blanket because it's going to be a tearjerker, kind of. It's a very stressful episode. Yep. And if you like our show, please rate us on iTunes so others can find us. And we will see you next time. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>